How I love your word, how it lights my path, how it guides my way. And preach the word to us. So we're going to read from Acts and chapter 19. We're still in our journey through Acts. Um, But we're getting into that latter part now, Acts chapter 19, and we're going to read verses 21 down to 41. And uh, this is Paul at Ephesus, Acts 19 and verse 21. Now, after these things were finished... Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will be, even be dethroned from her magnificence." When they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theatre, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theatre. So then, some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward. And having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defence to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So, since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and to do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly." 
For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray for Roger as he comes to share. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for these stories of Paul and his exploits for you. And we pray now that you will fill Roger with your Holy Spirit. And as he speaks to us, Lord, that the words will go into our hearts, Lord, and uh, will be planted there to bear fruit for you in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now we're continuing on as already Debbie has mentioned, was the story at the end of the Acts of Paul. One half of Acts is taken up with Paul, one half is taken up with Peter. The Pauline part goes on till the end of the book and you, you begin to see more and more this desire of Paul to go to Rome. And it's a kind of um, practical way of saying, look, we're going for the world. We want to get to the, to the centre of the world. Where's the centre of the world for the people of those that day? Well, it was Rome. It was the capital city of the empire. And uh, Paul has done quite a lot of work now in different parts of uh, the empire. But he's spent a lot of time just recently, just recently, as we've done this in our text, Sunday by Sunday, in the area of uh, Achaia and Macedonia, the sort of Greek area and Asia Minor area. And in Asia Minor, in particular, he spent over two years in Ephesus, which is the kind of the capital of that sort of southern area. And he's planted a church there. He's planted churches in quite a lot of places around um, Asia Minor and up into the northern parts. And now he's wanting to gather up a large amount of money that has been given by the Greek and the Asia Minor area churches and take it because there's a famine that has arisen. It had been one of the prophets stood up and prophesied there'd be a famine. So they began to get ready straight away. And they've gathered up money and they're taking it as a love gift from the people in those areas where churches have been planted and taking it to the believers in, in uh, Palestine in where Israel was. And that carrying the money there was very important to Paul. It's like saying, here are Gentile nations, not Jews, believers who really have taken to heart your famous Christ that you were waiting for. They're serving him. And we want to thank God for them and we're all a part of the same body. And we're working together to see the kingdom of God spread through the earth. And taking, therefore, a sum of money always is uh, an encouragement for people. And this was going to be important for Paul to take it with the love of the Gentile 
the non-Jewish believers who've come into being through his ministry in that uh, the um, areas I've mentioned of Greece and uh, Asia Minor and uh, joining them well together. And we've got so far, and some of you have said to me, well, we just keep going through the same old things. It's Paul getting up and he's going again. Well, that's because of his Paul. He's always on the go. And it's rare that he settles down. He did settle down in Corinth for about a um, year and 18 months. He settled down in Ephesus. And uh, so we mustn't think of him simply entirely as an itinerant evangelist. He was preaching the gospel everywhere he went, but he also was establishing the church. And to establish the church, he felt he had to stay with the people. They had to see in him what it meant to have a life with God in Christ. And uh, that establishment was giving strength for the church itself to carry on with the good news being spread. And as we go through this passage today, there are so many things we could take up of great interest. There's the way in which the various pagan elements with their different names but similar stories come together. They, you start off reading about Artemis, and that's the kind of local way of talking about the, the great um, goddess that was in Ephesus. And then you hear the titles coming out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And uh, the Diana and Artemis are just two separate sections of paganism coming together. And we see that all the time. Different movements try to get together for the strengths that everybody quotes to one another. We're stronger together. And that strengthening was coming from people clubbing up together to try and oppose the gospel. So it isn't surprising that we also read once again about riots. And out of this conglomeration of those who were resisting the good news of Jesus, we start to find um, a strong opposition which now begins to try to forcibly tackle the growing church. And it was growing very fast, as you read carefully at the beginning of this section in chapter 19 of the Acts of the Apostles. The church was going extremely fast and uh, this conglomeration of people coming together and being encouraged by a man called Demetrius who was a silversmith and silversmiths and their jewellery were all a part of the pagan religion of those days, still are I believe. And uh, they made quite a centre in of worship of um, Diana, of the pagan gods, in the city 
of, um, uh, where are we? The city of Ephesus. And this was where the tension arose. It's interesting, isn't it, that the riot that took place in the city came about because the workforce was very much tied to producing trinkets and silver work, which they would sell in conjunction with pagan religion. And if, as they say in, this, in the story, if you're listening carefully, that Paul was turning people away from the worship of these gods and he's turning them away from these trinkets and uh, religious kind of um, paraphernalia that was being produced, and particularly in silver, silversmiths. So that, those sort of workers, the money that was made through it was being threatened. Money so often lies behind the attacks on God's truth. It so often is the corrupting force that takes our hearts away from God. Paul says in another place, money is a root of all evil. And lots of things come out of a misuse, a misapprehension about money. And out of its wrong attitude that arises, people begin to oppose God. And that's why the riot took place and Paul nearly would have been killed, in fact, so much so that his friends wouldn't let him get into the big amphitheater where the city would meet together. And uh, they, he, they knew that if somebody said, there's that Paul who's turning people away from the worship which has been our worship for centuries, and which is the source of our income. And uh, they would have murdered him, of course, on the spot. But Paul was like that, wasn't he? He wasn't deterred by a riot. Uh, have you ever caused a riot? I think I've caused one or two in places, preaching the gospel and stirring up people's antipathy against me. Um, I think one of the worst was a student mission where um, Roger Mitchell was with me and we were preaching to these students and I got into, well, he first of all got into a dustbin and started shouting out, life is rubbish and throwing cabbages and whatever was in the dustbin out and uh, the students began to gather around. It made a bit of a noise and then I, in my calm and cool and calculated manner, as you so well know, began to explain to them the gospel, that Jesus has come to say life is not rubbish. And uh, we finished up with <laughs> Roger being, the other Roger, getting into a coffin, and we carried the coffin around and then at a certain point he leapt out and we began to preach the gospel. Now, I don't know if you like those kind of methods, but it was great fun. And anyway, we weren't much more than students ourselves and so we rather enjoyed 
sort of tackling things along their level. And um, we talked about Jesus rising again and what a difference it makes and etc. etc. Well, that really upset some people and they all began to shout us down and gather around us and threaten us and whatever. So uh, that was one that stands out in my mind. But there are probably others if I took long enough to think about it. It is a way of gathering a crowd, whatever. It's not always getting them to listen, but it does gather a crowd. So there are ways and means we take to get the gospel over when we think nobody's going to listen to us. However, although there are lots of parallels like this, in the text today, lots of things to discuss. The one thing I want to take out is the rather surprising designation of Christianity. Sometimes they were called disciples of Christ, sometimes they were called followers of Christ, sometimes they were called children of God, sometimes the Bible talks about them simply as the church, the assembly, meaning God's a good, a good gatherer, and he assembles people together and gets us to live and work together. If you can't live and work together with each other, we haven't really got a hold of the gospel yet. But um, anyway, those are different names. But in the text here, it talks about Christians as being those of the way. You know, those of you who got the text open, um, is it verse somebody shouted out? 23, the, the followers of the way. Now, I think that's quite a nice uh, title, don't you? It occurs about three times that we are those of the way. And uh, it starts to make people think when sometimes instead of saying, oh, I go to church, you say, I go to the way. Um, I am in the way. I'm on the way. <laughs> and that's another... <laughs> Another way of getting people talking and about explaining the gospel to people. And um, they, the, the way is the way that they were being talked about in this 19th chapter. And the, I haven't got my Bible open at the right place just at the moment. That's what made me hesitate there. But that's, that can mean at least three things calling Christians those of the way. What does it mean to say? Why call Christians those of the way or who belong to the way? And uh, so much so that if you're of the way, you're upsetting the lifestyle and the, and the financial balance of the people in your area. Well, the people of the way... People of the Wake, I would suggest you, possibly the title has three basic meanings. You may think there are more. Well, I've just picked out three to discuss this morning. The first thing is that it might mean simply there are those who are on the way to heaven. This is the simplest, perhaps, way of understanding it. They were those who were on the way to heaven. Are you on the way to heaven? Anybody? 
Oh, Joe, one or two of you are on the way. <laughs> and the followers who are on the way, on the way to the glory of God, they are people who are trying to walk in God's way to get there and to understand how God wants us to get us there. Now, if you're a member, you're a real member of the church, of Christ's body, you are on the way. You're a part of the way. And I remember uh, when I was... um, when I was, I think I told some of you before, at the time I thought I'd, I'd arrived, I was dead, in other words. I'd got to the end of the way. I was on the way to heaven, and I thought perhaps I'd got there. And uh, it was in a car crash, and I was knocked right out. And uh, uh, the first thing I thought of, because it all went very black, I thought, oh, uh, this is what it's like to be dead. So I thought I was dead. And then uh, I thought, I'm dead. Well, I've got to, if you like, I've got to the end of the road. We all get there sometime. So here I am at the end of the road, and I'm dead. And you know, I was ever so happy. I don't know if you expect to be happy when you step over into death. It's far better to be happy about everything in life. You may as well be happy in death as well, isn't it? And it, it was quite, I suppose, supernatural because you don't sort of, when you in a situation like this, a car crash, for instance, you don't sort of think, oh, it's a bit black around here. I wonder what's going on. I think I'm dead. Oh, well. And you don't, because the thing that made me happy was the next thought that arose. I'm going to see Jesus face to face. And that filled me with the joy that really took any sense of fear or misapprehension or whatever that might have arisen within me, I suppose. So I was quite happy that I was dead. So I suppose when I do die properly and not just think I was, I can feel happy too, and I can expect to walk over that threshold from one state into a happy state, whatever else I was before. And the end of the line of being on the road from birth to going to heaven and dying is um, one of the ways of understanding being on the way. And if you um, I, I'm going to tell you about a, somebody that I spent quite a bit of time on one occasion with explaining the gospel of Christ. And then we, <clears throat> we went off and he had to listen to me preach for a while. And then we came back and we talked further. And uh, when he had been younger and had been um, taken into the army, for tr- as we used to, and um, he was training in, I think it was Holland somewhere. He had met up with a bunch of Pentecostals, you know, fairly fervent and uh, happy, clappy types. 
And he, this had completely changed his view of Christianity. And he started to read his Bible, talked about it to his fellow members of his family. And at this particular occasion, he'd come with me, and then we talked afterwards. He was a long way away from that now. As time had gone on, he was quite a high-powered businessman, made a bit of money, worked hard, and now he'd lost any desire to know about Jesus, to talk to the Lord, to pray, in other words. And uh, he was miles away. And the only thing I could really get through to him was a quote I have often used when trying to sort of close the door on some things and open them up on others. I said, Bertrand Russell, who was quite a, a strong atheist, I think most of you know that, is strong intellectual, strong atheist, and rejected Christianity, he said, nonetheless, the ethics that Jesus taught, that is, how to live, were the best that the world has ever seen. And then his caveat to that was, but he couldn't teach his disciples how to live it. Now that's a bit threatening, but <coughs> I, taught, I said this to him, and all I could get out of our discussion after that was, well, that's where I'm at, he said. Yes, Jesus' teaching is the best, but he couldn't teach his disciples. Well, that's perfectly true. Perhaps some people, many, many Christians, <coughs> have lived quite opposite from what Jesus taught. But there are many <coughs> who have lived it, and they've lived it and uh, not been recognized even but they have lived it, and you can still live it. And you may be one of those who, maybe there was a time in your life when you were rather excited about Christianity and you looked at it and you thought about it a bit and you um, maybe admired it, maybe you thought it's the best word, ethics world's ever thought. If it is, then start living it. And maybe since then, your hearts wandered away from that way, that way which is between birth and death, and you've moved away from it, I want to suggest to you this morning, if you're one of those, get back on the road. The Lord will receive you. He doesn't hold it against you. He could have held all sorts of things against you. You know that, and I can guess that. <laughs> looking at some of you anyway but the Lord will not hold it against you if you feel you started off or you were interested and you dropped out because the way between birth and death is always open for people to step back on and to move back to listening to God and trying to go his way. Maybe you're sitting here this morning thinking, oh, I'm one of those. Yeah, I think Jesus taught the best ethics, but couldn't teach his disciples, could he? So that's not good enough. I'll try something else. I want to suggest to you there is nothing else worthy of 
trying. The trying is to get back on the pathway of following him and what he did and what he taught. Um, thank you. <laughs> my daughter, knowing my propensity of signaling to me, I have, um, I'm running out of time in a minute. <laughs> well, I do always do what my family tells me, I think, so I'll do my best. So that's the first way, perhaps, that the way means. It means the way in which, between birth and death, I can begin to find how to live, where I'm going, what life is about, and so on. And if you've stepped off, step back on. The second is, is um, the using the, the idea of way is quite important. It comes from what Jesus said when he said, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he goes on to point out that he was going to go to God. And one of the disciples says, well, um, you know, you say we, we're all right. We're not all right. We don't know how to go. Where do you go? And uh, show us the way. And Jesus said, I am the way. Now, what did he mean by that? The second wonderful thing, not quite so simplistic as the first, but very profound, is that Jesus himself is the way. Hence, we are those of the way, if we are true believers. And if it's a matter of Jesus explaining where he was going, it was, I'm going back to the Father. And if it was a matter of, well, how can I go that way? Have I been so long with you and you haven't known me? I and the Father are one. Now, this is a part of the in-depth response to the word way. And I'm going back to the Father. And whatever you ask um, me, um, I will ask the Father and he will give it to you. And the word way this time is being used as not a way of walking a road of trying to find my way in life, it's a matter of living in such a way that I can turn into the way to God at any moment. I'm going back to the Father. And if you come to me, you will know that I and the Father are one, says Jesus. Jesus' promise to us is that we will know if we came to him, if we only just very, very lightly and not very much in depth, I, hope it would be in depth, but if you just, in a transient sort of way, turn to, to Jesus, we'll start to find he's taking us to the Father. I will show you the Father. I will speak to the Father. You will know the Father answering prayer. And that is the way in which the way is perhaps much more profound than just simply getting on a road that goes to death, which we 
hope maybe there's something at the end of it. Um, I think I forgot to tell you what happened in my car accident, didn't I? When I thought I was dead, you know, well, not altogether. Um, when I came round in the hospital, I should have remembered to tell you, I was still a little bit dozy and dizzy, and the chap next to me, who turned out later to be, I found out, was um, training for the Church of England ministry, but he was in the bed, he was a ton-up boy, and he'd broken one of his, you know, that's old-fashioned language, isn't it? He'd broke one of his femurs, and um, it's the second time he'd done it. Yeah, I think the, he'd broken one, then he'd broken the other. I think his, he feared that one day he was going to break them both, and he wouldn't be able to walk at all. But um, he said to me, what are you, he said, are you a preacher or something? And I said to him, well, something like that. And he said, I should think so, he said. You've been preaching at me all night. <laughs> now, you know that uh, some people need to be put right out before you get a decent sermon out of them. <laughs> but uh, this, on this occasion, I'd managed to get through, even though I thought I was dead, I'd managed to get through to this chap when I was knocked out. And he still could begin to understand there is a gospel and there's a good need good need to get that need fulfilled and to begin to know God and that's the second kind of uh, um, it's the second kind of uh, way that Jesus as the way presents to us uh, to take every turn in our lives relating it back through Jesus and finding what deep down all of us really, really know that we need. The face, the personality, the real person that lies behind the universe. How do you find it? You find it by going on that pathway to the Father. And the pathway is Jesus. He is the way. Do you want to know? of the subtleties of life, the meaning of existence, the things, why things are as they are, and how we have to fight for truth and goodness and so on. We find out these things by turning to Jesus and finding that he takes us to the Father. And then we begin to realize there is, in the final analysis, not just a brick wall, not just a... Uh, a jellyfish or a meaningless entity, there is a living person behind the universe. We're all a bit unhinged and unhappy because we haven't yet made contact with the personality that lies behind creation. There's a lovely hymn I used to sing years ago we don't sing these ones anymore but um, I'll praise my maker while I have breath and when my life is lost in death praise will um, employ my nobler powers 
My days of praise shall ne'er be past till life and death and being, or life and thought and being last and immortality endures. And uh, the fulfillment of a human being's psychology, psyche, of a person's being, their makeup, is by turning to find that face behind the How do I find? If you've been with me, you, do you not know? Do you no longer <coughs> realize if you've seen me, says Jesus, you've seen what that face is like. You've seen the Father. You've seen what the Father looks like. You're getting to know the God, the person who lies behind everything. And the third thing, <coughs> excuse me, that um, I would fit, perhaps finish with, because I've gone on long enough. I hope you're getting an idea that the word, the way, as a title for Christianity is quite a rich one. And there are lots and lots of things yet that one could find out. It's the way to become what God intends us to be. It's to get on the way, get in the way. In the Old Testament, and there are Old Testament parallels to these things too, I'd love to have given you, had time to explain to you. But um, the Old Testament title here would be The Way of Holiness. <coughs> and there's a way of holiness. And... Uh, to be members of the way, to be those who put their feet down on the road of holiness. Don't often say holy, talk about holiness, do we? Well, it's Christ-likeness, of course. Same thing. And to become like Jesus, which is God's destiny for us, if we would accept it, is again a very profound thing. How do we find it? Well, we get on the way of holiness. We get on the way. And on the way is to lead us to be like Jesus. <coughs> the way to become like Christ is to walk that road all the time. And as you walk it with the Lord, not just on Sundays, not just when you are feeling a bit lonely or when you need some help, but all the time to walk the way of Christ, to walk the way of holiness. You become a member of the way and you, you find that he will continue to work in your life. Has this last week been a week in which you've learnt more about Jesus? Have you talked to him a lot? Have you developed a relationship with him? Have you listened to him? Are you finding out what he's saying to you? What he wants out of your life? Well, you're on the way if you're one of those. You've joined up with the Christian way which is all embracing, which week by week, day by day, I can hope 
and long to become more like Christ. I think there's a long way to go yet. Um, <clears throat> I know that one or two of you might say, um, why hasn't Roger Forster retired yet? Well, you know, I've re responded to that over the years. I don't believe in retirement. And I don't, I don't believe you retire from becoming day by day by day more like Jesus. So I'm not retiring from that, whatever I do. We have been praying and thinking about the future of Ixus, so be encouraged, but uh, um, I'm certainly not going down to Bournemouth and have a hotel just near, or whatever. Can you imagine it? <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> but um, I'm not retiring from becoming more like Jesus because there's still a long way to go. Not just that I don't smoke, spit, chew, or lie anymore. It's that in the depths of my being, I want to become not only more like Jesus, but I want to become as he is in his understanding and relationship to Father. And that is a lifelong, eternal thing, I think. I don't even know whether it stops after you become after you go to be with him. I think it's something that is very, very important that human beings should arrive at their true destiny and that is by spending time on the way, on the road of holiness and becoming more like Jesus through the way that God has made for us to know the resources, the power, the love, the energy of Jesus himself and the checkout that the Lord can make in our lives to lead us in that way and lead us away from untruth, lead us away from the negatives in life. Now you may not think I look more like Jesus this week than last week. That's probably why I kept away. <laughs> But I'm here, you're here, and we're here together to help and encourage each one of us on the way of holiness, uh, the way that we belong to, of becoming more and more like Christ. Have you understood that as belonging to the church? You've just not got a ticket for heaven. That was meaning number one for the way. It's not just that we've got an entrance into the depths and profundities to think about, write books about, of life and eternity and of God. But we are here to become every day, and we don't give up on this, more like Christ. And to become more like Christ is an adventure in itself and God has provided a way in which it can take place. If you've, not ever, if you've never got on that road, Jesus says, if you come to me, then you will find the truth and you will begin to live in the truth. And you won't want to retire because 
I'm not finished with you yet. <laughs> and God hasn't finished with me, no matter what we do in the future.